Well hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode we're continuing William Creelock's Vagabonding Under Sail and we're on chapter 12. Chapter 12. The Long Trail. And it's time to turn on the old trail, our own trail, the out trail. Pull out, pull out on the long trail, the trail that is always new. A quote from Kipling. Though we were bidding farewell to Georgetown, we were not yet leaving British Guiana. An urgent message had been sent to me asking me to call at a small mission farther up the coast. The priest in charge of the mission had had the misfortune of being my school teacher 15 years earlier in England. The mission lay on the Wainy River in an undeveloped part of the colony about 130 miles from Georgetown, so we swung our bows northwest up the coast. As we had discovered when making our landfall after the Atlantic crossing, the coast of Guiana offers few aids to navigation and variable currents sweep along it. In addition, the whiny entrance itself was so entirely hidden among the trees that it was quite invisible from a few miles to seaward. Every two weeks a small river steamer plodded up there from Georgetown and on one occasion the captain missed the entrance altogether and only turned back in answer to the frenzied entreaties of the passengers. The remainder of our first day produced little more than the complete discomfiture of Swizzle. As Content's motion became more lively, Swizzle's tail drooped lower until finally he succumbed and for the last time in his career was seasick. Though the following day produced even less wind, it was good to be underway again and to feel life in the old boat and see the sails drawing once more. A fitful progress and the help of the currents were sufficient for our dead reckoning to indicate that we were nearly opposite the whiny. Darkness was coming, so we lowered the mainsail and jib and lay under staysail during the night, heading very slowly towards the shore. The morning showed the horizon broken by a low coastline, but though we peered at it from the deck and rigging as we approached, we saw only an unyielding wall of green. We crept in closer, and then... When the trees themselves were becoming discernible, we found a dark patch towards which we steered. It was not until we were finding bottom at only two fathoms that we were sure of our position. We started the engine now to take us in over the uncharted bar. The soundings dropped from 12 to 11 feet and then down to 10. The leadsman was swinging continuously. Mud began to swirl astern and the depth dropped to nine feet. For a while, we nosed cautiously forward the depth was still nine feet, but we were past the little promontory now, and a small ash tree stretched ahead of us. Then the bottom sloped away to two fathoms again, and then three, and we were through. From this little estuary, the whiny river led away invitingly between dark walls of tall trees. A misty bank of rain came drumming across the treetops and fell around us, and through the mist the pink blur of a flamingo floated past. The Whiny River is narrow and overhung with deep dark waters which at the moment were patterned with circles of light rain. As Content motored up she broke the heavy daylight hush of the jungle. On each hand was a green mat of trees and shrubs and creepers, tall straight trees and slim young ones and gnarled and twisted aged trunks. One could almost sense the vast reserve of primitive energy, the constant fight, fight, fight for existence the struggle to reach the light overhead, with life and tall straight trunks for those that conquered 
and twisted trunks and withered limbs for those that failed. But as daylight died, the mystery came down again to the forest, and the moon that rose softened the outlines and breathed peace. And sometimes as we went, a graceful high-ended dugout, a coriole, slid noiselessly by, its occupants pausing in their stroke to gaze through the dusk at content. Perhaps they had been selling their citrus fruit at one of the settlements and were returning home. Occasionally, we saw the Indians swing suddenly into a small channel cut through the bush at the water's edge. They tied their canoe to a stake with a piece of creeper and went to their hut to eat a supper of dried fish and cassava bread before turning in, in their hammocks. After two hours of cruising through the moonlight, we tied up to a small stelling for the night and the next morning reached the mission itself at Hosororo. As the river was too deep for us to anchor, stakes were driven into the mud in the shallow water near the edge and content rested alongside them. From the moment we arrived at Hosororo, we were enveloped in the atmosphere of peace and friendliness. Father Buckley stood up well to the shock of seeing his former pupil, and his little blue cheep carried us all over the area. We learned that everyone had been worried about us, for we were a day or two overdue, and that the fishing boats had been told to keep watch for us in case we stuck on the whiny bar. A yacht had of course never been in the whiny before, and Content was quite unlike any other ship they had seen. When we first arrived, a little girl had gone running to the convent. Sister, sister, she yelled, a new little steamer has come. The settlement consisted of a few huts, two small stores in wooden shacks, the mission school and convent, and a small sawmill through which the local crabwood was exported to Georgetown. The flat ground by which we were moored broke into a hill on the face of which stood the white wooden buildings of the mission. Over the hill, a track led to the government compound where a dispensary, police station and the establishment of the district officer for the wild hilly surrounding area were grouped about a beautiful little tree-lined avenue. We have found it to be an almost invariable rule that the poorer the people we meet, the warmer is their welcome. In Hosororo, we were far from the benefits of civilization, but we found such kindness and tranquility, and especially noticeable among the natives such contentment, that we wished we could have stayed longer than the three or four days. We kept open boat while we were there, and every day found a group of shy, wide-eyed Indian children wandering down to be shown over content. The nuns too came down to see us. Our small hatch and steep ladder often caused lady visitors to blanch, but these nuns, literally used to paddling their own canoes, were quite undaunted and parachuted below, laughing and joking in a cloud of draperies. They were very good to us, those nuns, and used to send a child down each day with fresh bread baked by themselves. A sloth swam across our bows when we were out in Father Buckley's launch one day, and by following him we were able to watch his movements. The sloth is surely one of the most grotesque of animals, and his incredibly slow movements made us seem almost energetic in comparison. He grasped a small tree growing out of the water, and very, very slowly raised one paw above the other, closing long claws about the branch. His furry head swung round gradually, and he gazed at us with some bewilderment. Then the lower paw disengaged itself almost perceptibly, and slid over the other. Every move was accompanied by such an agony of deliberation that we were sorely tempted to lift him up a few feet and save him one or two hours of work. 
On the day of our departure, children came down from the convent with gifts of food from the nuns. They sent bread and fruit and groceries, a live chicken and even a seasick pill for me. One little tot came down with a gift of fruit from her father, and a storekeeper gave us some fuel and a pile of coconuts. All we could do in return was to take a party of children a few miles down river with us when we left. This jaunt had been offered in school as a reward for special merit, and excitement was intense. On the day itself, long before we had grumbled our way out of our bunks, our passengers were waiting on the riverbank. The trip was such a success that we had some difficulty in persuading the children to disembark at the end of it, and in retrieving our scarlet stocking hats, part of our ship's uniform, which the children had been so gleefully wearing. We had no berth available to offer to our newly acquired hen and decided upon a speedy execution. As we motored gently downriver, we gave some thought to its slaughter. This proved a more difficult task than we had anticipated, and putting a couple of reefs in its neck had no apparent effect. Finally, however, Ernest was seen squatting on deck with a bloodstained chopper in one hand and a decapitated chicken in the other, all this to the huge interest and evident amazement of Swizzle. So we ate a good chicken curry as we waited at the whiny mouth for high water, and shortly before dark, with all sail set and lead swinging, we stood out into the night up the coast for Trinidad. It is not easy to appreciate the effect of the great rivers which roll off the South American coasts into the Atlantic. Ahead of us, the Orinoco River spewed its muddy water out to sea and sometimes discoloured the ocean nearly 200 miles up the coast. We had the greatest respect for this apparently slumberous mass of water and decided to pass at least 20 miles to seaward of its mouth. The wind was light the next morning, but the weather was fine and warm and the sea calm. With our customary energy while at sea, we surrendered to the luxury of reading while Swizzle, now quite recovered from his initial discomforts, paced the deck and wondered what had happened to all that land. Ernest had taken a pair of excellent star sights in the early morning, or rather, they would have been excellent had we not discovered that we had left our nautical almanac aboard the Arthur Rogers. We would have to rely on dead reckoning. It was mid-morning, and Content just had steerage way upon her when we saw a line of foam and floating debris. The helmsman reported that either he had sunstroke, or we were approaching this line sideways, and that Content would no longer answer her helm. After a short consultation, we discovered the cause of the phenomenon. We were crossing the junction of Northwest Coastal Current and the east-going current from the Orinoco, whose mouth was nearly 25 miles away. The effect was quite weird, for so sharp was the dividing line that as Content crossed it, we felt her being slewed slightly off course. We could see the brown water flowing one way, and not a yard away blue water flowing the other way. It was as sharp as that. The breeze was so light that we had to use the engine to get out of the grip of the eddy, for currents beneath the surface made the rudder quite useless. There was no noise or easily discernible movements of the water, and the effect at night would have seemed quite inexplicable. Our breeze returned to us that evening, and we made progress up the coast. It was strange, I thought to myself, to feel again after six months the nudge of the tiller at night. How many midnight hours we must have sat in that cockpit, watching the dark outline of the mainsail against the night sky, the sweep of the masthead as it swayed, steadied itself, then swayed again, the tumbling splash of unseen wavelets, the menace of upwind clouds or the reassuring glance to windward 
to find the sky clear and starlit, and to leeward I turned my head. The lights of a steamer were passing across our quarter. That was strange. There was only one place for which she could be heading, the serpent's mouth, the channel leading round the southern end of Trinidad. It was time for us to bear away. Next morning, in a dancing, sparkling sea, we stood in before a firm breeze. About eleven o'clock, someone shouted, Land ahead! And above the bow rose the three humps of the hills on the southern coast of Trinidad. These were the hills which suggested the Trinity to Columbus and gave the island its name. We soon realised that we could not reach the serpent's mouth before evening, and since it is an unhealthy passage to negotiate in the dark, we decided to take the alternative route round the northern end of Trinidad, which added little to the distance. That night, when Don came up to relieve me at the helm, we were approaching the corner on which Galero light shone, and during Don's spell we swung round onto the northern coast of the island. The sunshine on the following morning smiled on an enchanting scene. We were idling along in calm water of a deep, limpid blue. A few miles to port rose the rugged, wooded hills of Trinidad, dropping steeply to the sea in a series of rocky coves and sandy, palm-backed beaches. We sat, sipping our morning coffee, the production of which is the first duty of the cook for the day, and gazed dreamily at the picture. Life could be very wonderful if it were not allowed to become too complicated. Swizzle, quite unmoved by all this beauty, just lay chewing the corned beef tin, which served as a bone when at sea. The only factor which disturbed this lotus-eating frame of mind was our progress, though pleasant it was pitifully small, and we had hoped to be in Port of Spain that evening. Throughout the day we lolled to the west, watching the small fishing boats which pottered round and waved to us in passing. In the evening a welcome little breeze bustled us towards the dragon's mouth, the northern entrance to the Gulf of Paria, which separates Trinidad from South America. As midnight drew near, we were able to harden our sheets and enter the middle channel. The high, sheltering hills occasionally threw down a handful of light airs to help us against the strong currents. Sometimes the light from a fisherman's hut blinked from the shore, otherwise we saw nothing but dim outlines and caught the warm odour of trees and heard the voices of the crickets and frogs. Don stood in the bows, looking out ahead, a formless blur and a low voice in the darkness. To enter under sail alone was a needless risk against that current, so we invoked the aid of the old grey mare. We emerged into the gulf to find a brisk headwind snorting down to us from the lights of Port of Spain, and a steep head sea buffeted us about quite unceremoniously. It was about 2am, and before us lay a three-hour beat to windward. The temptation was too great. We lowered sail and worked up under the lee of some islets under power. Of course, hardened mariners would have thrashed up through the night without a tremor. Hardened mariners would have battled in stinging spray and sodden clothes. Hardened mariners would have reached a haven as dawn was breaking. What a terrible affliction to be a hardened mariner. Trinidad is one of the largest and commercially most advanced of the British West Indies, and both the tourist trade it has attracted and the oil which it exports have made it relatively prosperous. The capital, Port of Spain, has the same teeming population of whites and yellows and browns and blacks that Georgetown showed, perhaps in even greater profusion. It has beauty in some of its open spaces and in the variety of form and colour of its suburban houses, but it has no soul. It has bartered it to the tourist trade as any city will, 
which is dependent on that for its income. Perhaps it was because of this that despite the lovely scenery of its northern end, Trinidad did not appeal to us very strongly. One of the most interesting features of Trinidadian life was the calypso. We had often heard this type of song tumbling high-spiritedly out of a radio at home, but it was not until we heard it in its original setting that we realised it was more than a particular style of song and dance. The calypso originated as a spontaneous outburst by the people themselves, and at one time was sung in the French patois, which is still spoken in the country districts. It was a news column set to music, a lusty commentary on the political and social life of the island, and a legitimate outlet for grievances. The great Calypsonians bearing colourful names such as Attila the Hun, King Pharaoh and the Lion were not only great showmen, but were masters of the art of extemporization. It is not surprising that, having introduced its own type of rhythmic song, Trinidad should have developed its own method of playing it. This method, which is spreading throughout the Caribbean, is the steel band. This band is first of all purely percussion, and all of its instruments are homemade. The chief of these instruments is a gong-like drum made from the top of a metal barrel. The circular tray obtained by cutting off the end of the barrel is heated, and the different segments into which it is divided are beaten out to different thicknesses, each of which produces a different tone when struck. Thus, the drum becomes more than a mere percussion instrument, and the music produced has a primitive, haunting quality I found very attractive. I have only one personal quarrel with Trinidad. It all started because we had some charts sent out to us from England. Apparently, a package such as this addressed to a ship is removed from the regular delivery channels if not collected within a certain time and stored in a cavern. This cavern, though not guarded by hydra-headed monsters, is guarded far more efficiently by hand-picked government clerks, grit with red tape. Unfortunately, our arrival at Port of Spain came a few days after the end of this period of grace and our modest little roll of charts had already been removed to the cavern. I plunged into the task of rescuing it. I trudged from office to office and warehouse to store. I had forms designed, signed and countersigned and stamped. I bowed, kowtowed and curtsied to deities behind desks and at last, after 14 different moves, I came away with my prize and carried it in triumph to content. Two other English yachts lay with us in the choppy anchorage off the hospitable yacht club outside Port of Spain. They were the lovely schooner Mollyhawk, with whom we became friendly, and the sleek yawl Palmosa. As is very often the case with boats far from their home waters, both of these were more than 30 years old, yet both were magnificent ships in appearance and condition. Port of Spain gave Swizzle his first taste of metropolitan life. By this time, he was fairly well trained and greatly admired for his good behaviour, but he was quite unused to traffic. One morning, Ernest was walking with him along a busy road. Swizzle suddenly went hysterical and, barking wildly, rushed through an open front door and chased the lady of the house round her own living room, eventually cornering her behind the divan. The dog was, of course, quite harmless, but the situation was somewhat embarrassing for Ernest, who came galloping into the room to corral Swizzle and to comfort the lady. This episode caused us some worry at first, but we soon realised that it was only a temporary upset, and by the time we ended our two-week stay, he was rapidly gaining in sophistication and was by far the most popular member of the crew with everyone we met.
Well, that's the end of today's chapter. We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship, and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.